Hello, thank you for listening to the Grace Point Church Media Cast with Pastor Mike McDaniel. If you live in northwest Arkansas or if you visit this area, we would love to have you at any of our three Sunday morning gatherings. You can check our website, gracepointchurch.net, for service times and any other information about Grace Point. If this cast doesn't update for you after November 1st, it's because we're consolidating our two podcast feeds into one, and you may be subscribed to the one that we'll be discontinuing at that time. If that happens, please go to our website and resubscribe, or just do a search in iTunes for our podcast, and you'll be able to subscribe there. And please contact us if you have any problems. Again, thanks for joining us. Here's Pastor Mike with this week's message. You know... Sometimes I think it's easier to pretend and be a poser than it is to be real and authentic, to face the music of who we really are and not who we are pretending to be. Masquerading is certainly easier than morphing. Morphing is that transformation that Jared spoke about that affects every corpuscle of our being, every part of our existence it, it, it shapes and changes us in an amazing way. I wonder, as we looked at last week, the demon-possessed man, in the synagogue in Capernaum on, on the Sabbath day, I wonder, was he there faking or seeking? Was he there faking a relationship with God? Or was he there seeking a true and authentic life-changing relationship with God? Because we don't know that. We don't know exactly his motive in being there. But the, the line between the two is really so thin, but the difference is so vast. Was he seeking or was he faking in the synagogue that day? I'm convinced more and more that Satan is very happy and contented with us coming to church. He will be very happy and contented with us coming to church for a couple hours in a, in a week and, and, and worshiping and singing, maybe raising our hands and clapping when the band leads us to, and even maybe taking an extra hour beyond that and serving in one of our children's areas and teaching some basic Bible stories to some children or something like that and, and going that far. He's very content with that, maybe even shaking a few hands in the hugs ministry on your way out the door. He's okay with that. If he, He'll give you two hours a week to fill a religious void if he can have the 166 remaining. If he can have the 166 remaining just to kind of shape and mold us and manipulate us and to cause us to live in some kind of masquerade, some kind of fakeness facade, then he's okay with that. Judas is an example of a man who could walk and live and breathe and heal and, and be a part of the very intricate of, of Jesus' ministry, the very, the very inside of it, he even held a position in his, in, his, in his group. He was the first treasurer of Jesus' ministry. I mean, you can't find a person that is any more on the inside of the, of the movings of a Jesus movement than Judas. But we've read the story and we know what happens in the end. But did the other disciples see it coming? Or was he just blending in like everybody else? Because this is what it says in John 13, verse 2. It says that when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, 
See, the devil had somehow been able to penetrate through the religious church walls, if you will. Let me hang with that a moment. Church walls, if you will, and able to penetrate into the heart of Judas, a leader, a treasurer, a position holder inside Jesus' core leadership. You have, you have the, the man in the synagogue. He's going to church, if you will. He, every Saturday, if you will, in Capernaum where Jesus did his ministry and lived and walked, he was either a faker or he was a seeker. I don't know. Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and weeds. And he talks about how the wheat being the genuine, true, nourish-giving followers in this parable, because a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and so he tells this earthly story, but it has a spiritual meaning to it. And he says the wheat, that's the real stuff. He says, but if you're not careful in the midst of the real stuff, Satan will put in some weeds. And this is what it says in Matthew 13, 25. It says, while, this, while the men were sleeping, the enemy came in and sowed weeds. The enemy, who is that? The adversary. Sowing weeds, false, inauthentic, not genuine followers of Christ. If, if Satan and the adversary can have that kind of penetration into, into the followers of Christ, into the very community that Christ lived and existed in ministry, if he can have that level of, of influence and penetration, what's to keep him from penetrating our lives? And literally allowing us to be in church and to be religious and to identify with a, a body of believers, but let yet that change not be there. That morphing, it's easier to go with a masquerade than it is to morph. How does Satan penetrate the church? He does it just one person at a time. He just does it one person at a time. He's not looking for anything. He's not going to come in and take the church necessarily and divide it down the middle. He's going to just go in one. And he's going to go in another. He's just going to begin to influence them. So when does the devil go to church? He goes to church when we allow him to penetrate our lives. To take a, take a foothold of our life. Take a corner of our life. Take an area of our life that we have not fully yielded to him. And he takes it over. I want to list for you five ways. I could have listed for you ten studying through the Scriptures, but I'm only going to list five today. Five ways that I believe Satan comes to church. And he, de- he deals with us and he tempts us and he twists us and turns us into puppets for him. But as you think about this, this is not something new because Paul and Timothy were dealing with this. Paul was instructing Timothy at one point in 1 Timothy 5, verse 14 to 15, he says, Give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. Nobody would choose to go after Satan on their own. But somehow he gets his way into our lives and penetrates us just a little bit so that he can have a foothold in our life. So how does he come to church jot these down. One is I think he misaligns our beliefs and our behaviors. If he can get us off track there, then he's got us more or less as religious puppets. Beliefs plus behaviors equals convictional living. When your beliefs and your behaviors are lining up, that is a a beautiful marriage of two. 
When your beliefs and behaviors is convictional living, it's the kind of living that hopefully you are living by. I don't care if you're right or wrong or you agree or disagree with somebody. There's something about when their convictions are lining up with their beliefs and their beliefs are lining up with their convictions, even if they're wrong and they're sincerely wrong, you've got to admire their character and commitment to that cause. Whatever it is. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying you've got to admire that. At least there's no duplicity in their life. However, when beliefs and behaviors are misaligned, that is hypo- hypocritical living. That's whenever there's a, they're, they're opposed to one another. They're not lining up. They're not congruent with one another. And I'm afraid there's a whole lot of believers, if you will, that have beliefs in Jesus and beliefs in the church and belong to a church but their behaviors aren't lining up with their beliefs. And the world has a real problem. When we as, they don't have a problem when we sin as much as when we act like we don't sin. When we act like we don't sin and we act like we have it all figured out and we just aren't real and authentic and we're playing that masquerade, then I think that really is a turnoff to this world. But if we could let our lives and the struggle within us really come out, take your Bibles and find the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, first book in in the New Testament, you'll find uh, a beautiful passage of Scripture where, where Peter is really receives a beautiful promotion, if you will. He really gets a, a lot of accolades. From, the, from, uh, from his relationship with Jesus. And it's the greatest promotion in his life, the greatest praise in his life, but he also receives the greatest criticism in his life. And if you look at this, it's a very familiar passage of Scripture. I preach from it every year. It's when Peter made his confession of who Jesus was. And if you pick up in verse 16, it said, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what a statement, what a belief, what a confession did he make there. And Jesus' response is, is this. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That was his real name, but he changes his name here. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, you're a rock. And on this rock I will build my church. He just got the greatest compliment that he could ever receive in his life. Peter, you're a rock. You're solid. I can believe in you. I can build my church on you. You're, the, you're, you're, you're next. You're the church planner of the future. You're powerful. You're going to be influential. You're going to make a big difference in this world. And then if you skip down to verse 21. From that time, began, uh, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed on the third day, be raised. And Peter, again, Peter has just been promoted as the chief uh, cog in the wheel. And so he says, oh, Jesus, come aside here. We've got to get some things straight here. I'm going to be your PR coach here for just a moment. This isn't good talk. He says that Peter took him aside and he said, Rebuke, he, G, Peter rebuked Jesus, and saying, far be it from you, Lord, that we shall never, this shall never happen to you. This will never going to happen. This is not good talk. The movement can't go forward if you talk like this. I've got bigger plans for you. And this is what Jesus said, but he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You 
are a hindrance to me. Wow. Jesus says in one breath, you're a rock, and the very next breath out of Jesus' mouth is that you are a hindrance to me. You are Satan. At one moment, he's promoted the chief church planner, the leader of a movement. The next moment, Jesus looks at him and says, listen, you are working for the devil. How can you reconcile these two statements? Was Jesus schizophrenic? No. Was Jesus, was Jesus struggling inside himself? Or is there vast amounts of time between one passage and the next? The Scripture doesn't lead, give us any indication of that. But what I think we see here is we see a light that's not in alignment. It, when, when, when Jesus wanted to know who do people say that I am, who do you say that I am, Peter was the first on the front row. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. His beliefs were there. But whenever it came to living out those beliefs and, and following up with that, he, 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 see, what, what Peter wanted, Peter wanted the success of the kingdom, not the sacrifice of the cross. He didn't want to live in that sacrificial life. And so whenever Jesus started talking this death talk, then Peter steps up again and says, listen, we, we can't talk like this, Jesus. He pulls him aside and says, you can't talk like this. This will run the movement. This will run the success. We can't go here, Peter. We can't go here, Jesus. And then he becomes a tool of Satan. So his beliefs were in alignment, but his behavior was not. When your beliefs and your behaviors are not in alignment, you are not congruent in your faith and you are living a hypocritical life. Jesus went on to say to Peter, says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He wanted the success of kingdom building, not the suffering of the cross. In January 2002, a man widely regarded as the father of the Christian marriage ministries, Ray Musselholder of Marriage Plus Ministries, filed for divorce. Started a ministry, filed for divorce from his wife for 42 years and announced his plans to remarry. Here's a man that's helping marriages Survive. Here's a man who started a marriage ministry to struggling marriages, and his website says that he helped 11,000 marriages from the brink of divorce. That's how influential this guy was. But yet, after 42 years of marriage, he has to announce to his supporters that he is divorcing his wife and remarrying. He was on television, he was on radio. He wrote to his letter, he wrote to his supporters this statement. He said, the story, speaking of himself, he said, the story of the shoemaker who was too busy that his own wife had to go without shoes. I have been that shoemaker. I make no excuses for it. What I taught was truth. That's the belief part. He knew. He could teach it. He could write it. He could save 11,000 marriages. His beliefs were right. They They were on course. However, it seemed that we were never able to apply it, the behavior part, in our own marriage. Sad story. Sad story. When our life and our beliefs are not in line, we are misaligned. And we go from being a rock 
rocket soaring to the, to the heights to being a rock sinking to the bottom? Is your life in alignment? Or are you answering all the right questions today? Saying all the right things today? Teaching the children all the right truths today? But your life, there's some parts of it, some corners of it that are not aligned. The second way that Satan comes into our lives and influences believers and into the church is marriage vows are unequal in faith. When our marriage vows are unequal in faith. Paul was a single man. No no indication that he was ever married. I think Paul's an indication of, of a person who showed a highly disciplined life and almost by his life example and even his words that it is better to be single than to be married in inequality of faith. He said this, he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he said, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Do you realize that Satan will use an unequally paired individuals, couples who are dating together today, if he can find them and, and misalign them in their faith and life, he can create a division that may not flesh itself out today because they're still in the courting phase and they'll go anywhere and do anything with them. But in their life and in their real actions in life, whenever the marriage is going, they don't intend to attend church. They're misaligned. You realize this studies have shown that one of the largest categories of unchurched people out there are people who marry outside or in unequal faiths. Even denominations that are well intending a Methodist marrying a Baptist, they just won't go anywhere. We've got to be in alignment. When somebody comes to me for marriage counseling and premarital counseling, which I don't do a whole lot, but when I do, that's the, that's, I enjoy doing premarital counseling because you've got two people enamored with one another, and I like to punch, poke a hole in the bubble every now and then. Because it's going to pop sometime, and I want to help pop it. Because if they can face it now, face the music now, then it may save a lot of heartache later. One of the first questions out of my mouth is this, why are you coming to me and not the justice of the peace? And the question is always, oh, we want God to bless our marriage. We want God in our marriage. And so for the next several weeks, I will spend time just trying to talk them out of getting married. Literally. I will show them through inventories their strength areas, yes, but I'll also point out and spend the remainder of the time dealing with the areas that they need to grow in if they're going to stay married. Because it's amazing how many strengths you can have out there, but it only takes one area of weakness and a marriage can crumble. Be careful in that area and in all areas that you are equally yoked with one another. The relationships. I I would tell people today, don't date anybody today that you would not marry tomorrow. Don't even play the emotional game. Because all of a sudden your heart overseeds, overrules your head. And all of a sudden it's too late. And I have made couples mad, and that's okay. I'd rather make them mad than divorced later. Number three. Third way, Satan comes into a marriage. And listen very carefully to this one, because this is a tough one to share. When the marriage bed is compromised. Notice this, that two of the five ways that 
Satan comes to church relates to the family. If he can get into the family, he can get you out of sync with your relationship with God. And you might think, okay, Mike, I know where you're going with this. It's whenever one of the spouses cheats. That's, that's definitely compromising the marriage bet. But where I'm going to go with this is not something, again, that I would have chosen to go with this, but it's exactly where Paul goes with it in his writings. Because it's not just that. Did you realize married, happily married couples today, listen very carefully, I'm talking to you. Happily married couples today, do you realize that Satan can literally crawl into your bed between you and your spouse? He can crawl into your bed and separate the two of you. In all of your well-intentioned motives and, and, and things of life, He can separate the two of you where no longer are you intimate with one another at a level that you need to be. If you don't believe my words for it, read 1 Corinthians 7, 4-5. It says, The wife does not have full rights of her own body. Her husband shares them. And the husband does not have full rights of his own body. His wife shares them. Notice this. When you go into a marriage, you surrender yourself to your spouse. Your spouse surrenders themselves to you. Do not, verse 5, do not refuse to give your bodies to each other unless you both agree. Unless you both agree. See, I'll tell you this. Sexuality in the marriage is supposed to be mutual. Consenting. Committed adults. Unless you both agree to stay away from sexual relations for a time so that you give your time to prayer. Then come again so Satan cannot tempt you. Wow. He literally comes in and he says, Satan, if you're not careful, will enter into your bed and cause a division to where you are no longer intimately with one another. And I will tell you this, it is demonic for a couple not to have fun, free, and frequent intimacy with one another. When I say fun, I mean mutually enjoyable. When I say frequent, look what he says there. You better come together or Satan can come in and tempt you. When I say free, I don't. I, I mean by the, the fact that I'm going to give you something if you'll give me something attitude. Wrong. Wrong. And the factors of our world in which we live, I think many times, step in and cause us good marriages to lose and allow Satan to slip into the bed with them whenever we allow stress, when we allow our lifestyles, when we allow our busyness, when we allow our poor communication, our self-seeking ways, which again, he, he kicks that completely out of the marriage. Your body's not your own. Her body is not her own. Our self-seeking ways, our failure to speak each other's love language, when we overwork, when we, we, we don't play together and share together and pray together, our lifestyles many times will allow Satan to enter into our marriages. Dr. Archibald Hart, who's probably the foremost psychologist who studied sexuality and marriage from a Christian perspective, has published a book, and he said this. He created an acronym in all of his studies in marriage. It's called the DENS, Dual Income, No Sex Couples. We become so consumed with our own life. Folks, do I enjoy talking about this on a Sunday morning? No. But you know what? I'd rather talk about it here than wait for Hollywood to teach us or divorce to come. 
Let's not let our marriage beds be compromised. My question to you today is Satan sleeping between you and your spouse. Number four, how does he come into our church? How does he come into our lives? When giving is restricted, restraint, and rebellious. Take your Bibles. Be looking at Acts chapter uh, 5. We'll be there in just a moment. Acts 5 is, uh, if you go over to the right, a couple of books, you'll find where the red letters end, Acts begins. Chapter 5. The early church is going here. We just saw in chapter 4 a few weeks ago how Barnabas models for us generous, gregarious, gracious giving and glorifying giving, excuse me. And that is the 3G giving that we want to model in our church that we, I believe is Christian giving. It's not just did I give my tithe or whatever. It's am I giving generously, gregariously, unhindered is what that means, or and glorifying. But what happens is there's a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. And I dealt with this a few weeks ago, so you were probably here. But I think it's worth dealing with just real quickly here. Notice this in verse, chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a, a piece of property, which if you look back in chapter 4, it's exactly what Barnabas did. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? How does Satan come to church? Whenever our giving becomes restricted, resistant, and rebellious. To lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. See, he was a poser. He was masquerading as a generous giver like Barnabas was, but he really wasn't. God ends up dealing with he and both his wife in a very severe way. But that restricted giving is the idea that we compartmentalize our, our life. It's, this is the amount I'm going to give to God, and the rest of it I can do with it what I want. God says in Luke 14 that everything belongs to Him. And we get to keep what He allows us to keep. Don't give restrictedly. Don't give resistantly. God says He loves a cheerful giving, a giver. Rebellious. The idea that the love of money is greater than our love for God. And I think sometimes we live in the trees, that we, we live in the forest that we don't see the trees. As you were here last week, some of you, and, and met my great friend, Friday C. Bomber. Before Friday, I put him on the, on the plane last week. I, I said, I want you to write down. I'm not going to take you to the airport until you write down what it is that impressed you or impacted you or has come to your mind as a result of you being here in America. So I asked him to write just down some bullet points. He didn't have to elaborate on them. And his initial response was all flattery. And I said, listen, we're not looking for flattery. I want to know your observations. He wrote down like 11 observations. I put them on my blog. But there was one observation that I thought was so, so pure and so innocent and so real and revealing about our culture. And he said, every day, everyone is shopping and buying. Every day, everyone is shopping and buying. You know what I really wish he had written about the McDaniel family? About your family? Because every day, everyone is giving and serving. Everyone, every day, is praying and worshiping. 
But his observation of America is every day we're spending and consuming. We're spending and consuming. And then all of a sudden, there's an opportunity to bless. There's an opportunity to give. There's an opportunity to, 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 to take God's kingdom to whole new heights. And all of a sudden we say, I don't have anything left to give. I've spent it all. I'm committed to it all. It becomes restricted. It becomes rebellious in our hearts. Bill Heibel said it so well. He said, the church will never reach its her full redemptive potential until the river of financial resources starts flowing in her direction. Our church is on the threshold of starting multiple gatherings, multiple campuses, multiple churches, and multiple countries. But my fear is that the resources won't be there. The people may be in place, and the needs may be in place, and the opportunities may be identified. But because we don't give 3G giving, Satan has entered into our heart like Ananias and Sapphira. We're in trouble. Let us be aware that the greatest blessing that we can give a community is to start a church. No other organization will bless a community, body, soul, and spirit, than starting a church. You've heard me say that. Number five, and I'm finished. He comes in through our marriages, through our relationships, through our misaligned lives. He comes in whenever He can get us through the back door so committed to the material possessions of this world that we can no longer give. But also He comes in whenever we have an inability to resolve conflict. Marriages fell because of it, don't they? Business partners split up because of it. Churches create denominations because of it. Political parties and platforms are formed because we can't get along. We can't resolve conflict. It's amazing when somebody does come to me for marriage counseling, how it's the simple little things that have layered up and built up in their marriage. It's not necessarily the huge monstrous things. It's the simple layers on top of layers on top of layers that have just eroded the marriage. And many times it's resolving conflict that can absolutely bring peace back to the home. I tell you, I, I will fight for the unity of our church. Now, it sounds like an oxymoron, but this is what Ephesians 4.3 said. He said, being diligent to preserve, to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because I realize that conflict can come in at any level with well-intentioned people. Let us be aware of that. And a few verses later in Ephesians 4, this is what, Paul said, he said, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And listen to this last phrase. And do not give the devil opportunity. Opportunity is that word that we all like. I have a business opportunity. I have a business proposal. I have an advancement opportunity. I can move my family here. I can move up the ladder. Opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. You know what? Satan is frothing at the mouth when he sees anger between people. That's an opportunity that he is just praying and looking for the opportunity to step into our life, our marriages, our businesses, our relationships. He's looking for the opportunity of a lifetime to tear us apart. We've got to learn that we can walk 
hand in hand and not see eye to eye on everything. Failure to resolve conflict results in a spiraling down. Let me jot them down real quickly. Number one, unresolved conflict leads to an inability to forgive. If I can't get past the anger, the disappointment, the betrayal, if I can't get past it, then I become angry. And when I am angry, then I somehow can't forgive you. And I'll take it with me, and even when I see you, my stomach will turn. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. We read this passage several times. I want to read it to you from the message. And notice how forgiveness and Satan's schemes go hand in hand because in verse 10 it says this, The fact that I am joining with, uh, in with your forgiveness. Verse 10. And verse 11 says, After all, we don't want to unwittingly give Satan an opening for yet more mischief. We're not oblivious to his sly ways. That's, that's the reality that forgiveness... And conflict resolution go hand in hand. And and if we don't learn to resolve conflict, it's really hard to forgive. And it builds up and it piles up. Life principle for you is forgiveness is always given, never earned. you got to give it, even when they don't deserve it. Otherwise, it creates a cancer in you. If there's an inability to forgive, then that leads to bitterness. It hangs with you long enough. It hangs around long enough. It begins to affect how you see life, how you see people, how you see circumstances. And it becomes a poison, a bitter poison. This is what it says in Hebrews 12:15. It says, let no one become like a bitter plant. Plants reproduce themselves. You know that, don't they? Don't you? That grows up and causes many troubles with its poison. Don't let bitterness... Whoever it is, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 days ago, that you're seething about right now, and you may need some help in this to be able to forgive them. To say, even if, and listen, they may not even be repentant. They may not be sorry and may not even know that you're angry with them. But for you to be able to reach into your heart and to say, okay, I realize you're not perfect and I'm not perfect. You're forgiven. The freedom that comes, the deliverance that comes, the poison that goes away, because the reality is is that the third result is that bitterness leads to death. One person has said this, that bitterness is drinking poison and, and waiting for the other person to die. You really think that you're so angry at them, eventually God will strike them, like Sodom and Gomorrah. But in reality, Satan has a foothold with you. And the death that He will lead us to will kill us of our joy. It will kill us of our ability to give. It kills us the romance in the marriage. It kills it. It kills us of the unity in the marriage. It kills us of our integrity. It, it, he's going to kill us in any and every way that He can. And maybe today the only thing that you can pray out is, God, God, rescue from myself, from my anger. God, rescue me. I want us to sing a song that I think really is a capstone for this entire series. It it encapsulates everything that we're about. And that's the idea that, that in the midst of the war that we are in, sometimes Satan doesn't have all of us, but he has a part of us.
Maybe it's we're misaligned. Maybe it's that our, our relationships are not aligned with His. And, and, and maybe that our, Satan has literally entered into our bed with our spouse. Maybe it's that we can no longer give because we're so consumed with consuming. Or maybe, maybe it's because there's unresolved anger and we just can't get past it. Would you pray with me? I've mentioned five of what could have been ten areas that need tremendous amounts of attention in our lives. If you, if you can identify with one of them, or maybe multiple ones of them, and you right now feel like Satan has attended church with you today in your heart because he has you in one of these areas, just with every head bowed and every eye closed. I, and you say, Mike, I want you to pray for me. Just raise your hand up and put it back down. Thank you. All across the room. All across the room. Isn't it subtle? He's so subtle. I've said it before. He doesn't care how he gets you as long as he gets you. He doesn't care how fast he gets you as long as he gets you. As long as he can take you down, he'll take you down. pray for you and then we're going to sing. Maybe you feel like you need to come and pray at the front here. Maybe you need somebody to pray with you. I'll be here at the front. Father God, this is your time. We're your people. You've seen the hands across this room from one corner to the next, from one side to the next. Lord God. Lord God. Set us free from the, the demise of Satan. Set us free from the masquerading of our faith. Set us free from being consumed by the gods of this world, buying the things of this world. We have no longer the ability to give to you. Set us free. Rescue us, Lord, from relationship bankruptcy and marriage failure. Set us free from allowing Satan to enter into our homes. Set us free, Lord, from from the anger and the bitterness and the death that comes upon us when we give opportunity to the devil. Set us free from being misaligned. Not being aligned with you in behavior and in beliefs. (laughs) Help us to give past our self-righteousness. We could pass a theological exam, but our life would fail miserably. Set us free.